Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Zoe Bell, a New Zealand actress, stunt double, and stunt coordinator whose credits include The Hateful Eight, Thor Ragnarok, and last year's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you'd like to hear more about the making of the underrated Death Proof and an in-depth discussion on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you can skip straight to part two of the conversation. But in this first section, we discuss a wide range of topics. From Zoe's beginnings in New Zealand as the stunt double of Lucy Lawless in the Xena TV series, a special trip to Los Angeles which led to her meeting Quentin Tarantino and being cast as Uma Thurman's stunt double for Kill Bill, her creative relationship with Quentin, and why he insisted on making the stunts for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as period accurate as possible, psychological toll that major injuries can have on stunt performers, and much more. I gotta be honest, this two-part episode is one of the most personal and spontaneous conversations I've shared in a while, and I'm just grateful to Zoe for opening up and sharing her story. I must also recommend Double Dare, which we mentioned in our conversation, and is an action-packed documentary about the struggles of two stunt women in male-dominated Hollywood, Zoe herself being one of the two main subjects in the film. As always, if you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Zoe, thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. I'm really excited. And starting off, I just want to ask you a little bit about your introduction to the stunt world, because I believe your first experience was sparked by an introduction from your dad, who was a doctor, and he handed you a phone number to call. So allow me to ask, who is Pete Bell? And when it comes to creative mentorship, what do you think the biggest lesson was that you learned from sharing the set with him over the first few years in the business? Wow. Interesting. Yeah, that did come around from my dad. I mean, it came around from me originally just because I had suddenly discovered that people got paid to do this kind of stuff. And I was like, I'm sorry, back it up. Because I was kind of thinking about medical school, not excitedly. Just my dad was a doctor. His dad was a doctor. I was like, oh, maybe med school. And then I found out people fought and flipped and got paid. And I was like, I'm going to rethink everything. Um, And I guess I'd been talking about a lot. So that's how that came about. Pete Bell, no relation, just for the record. Far out. It's been a long time since I've thought about that guy. I mean, listen, he's a really interesting character, actually. I'm stoked to have you asked about about him. I wish I'd thought about him a little bit more when we were just talking about him for 20 minutes. But basically, when Xena and Hercules, Pacific Renaissance is a production company that brought that to New Zealand, their intention was to bring a stunt department from America, of course. It was, makes sense. Union, you know, we're just New Zealand. What would we know? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm not sure the details of how he got the meeting or what have you. But Pete basically took a meeting with one of the top producers and basically said, give me a whatever month trial period, two months, three months, whatever, and went to certain martial arts schools and I think some gymnasiums and, and hand-picked, you know, 12, 14 people and proceeded to become the stunt coordinator, DOP, um, HOD, sorry, for it was Hercules at the time. And I guess he did a good enough job. So it was sort of like without that guy, there wouldn't be any Ellen Poppletons, there'd be no... 
Ben Cooks, there'd be no Zoe Bell, there'd be no Stuart Thorpe, there'd be, you know, these guys are all, whoever's listening can now quickly Google their names, and they're all smashing all kinds of massive projects right now, and none of us would have got that opportunity without Pete. I don't think I'm answering your question, but I just suddenly got really excited to speak to this a little bit. That There's a little kind of rat pack of us that started off making shit up as we went along a little bit. They were all there before me. I came in a couple of years into the piece, I think three, four years later. So basically, to come back around to your question, I think, A, the combination of the New Zealand culture, the way New Zealand sets are run and crews work, and I think probably Pete's presence. We just work really hard. We work really hard. We're not big on complaining. We don't feed off compliments. It's like we need feedback. I need it to be critical. Not critical bad, but critical, like important to making it better. And then we get the job done. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened with Pete later on, which was why I think I should make a documentary about all of this. But we were a tiny little community and a new industry, the stunt community in particular. And he was sort of the head of it. And it got to the point where the younger guys came up a little bit and we got to the point where it was like, oh, shit, some things need to change. And we need to, you know, we were paying a percentage and Lord of the Rings came and they all did things differently. And it's sort of, you know, when you're in a tiny little pond, you don't question anything. And then things started getting questioned. And it caused a bit of a ruckus and there was some political upheaval and it was all, you know, it was messy and nasty and it was our whole world, so it was a big deal. But then you get past that and he's still working and we're all still working. It's such a fascinating time. I love that you brought that up. That's so cool. Then let's talk about it. Before getting to Kill Bill, I think what's interesting about your beginning in, in Xena is just it blows my mind that your first introduction to the stunt world was in television because you guys probably had so not only you're splitting your time between first and second unit, but you probably have such a heavy amount of action you gotta get through on a weekly basis as opposed to feature work. So about your experience in Xena, you had this to say, quote, I found myself sitting between two generations of stunt people. I'm not the new generation, but my experience was more with the older generation because New Zealand was a little bit behind the technology hadn't reached. We were still cowboying the fuck, let's give it a go kind of way. There's a different level of pain required in the jobs and each generation feels like the next one has it too easy. Close quote. So again. <laughs> this is uh, fun having you quote me back. This is great. So again, I was telling you, if anyone listening, I, I saw Double Dare last night. I, I'm so glad I did. It blew my mind. And it's really, really inspiring to see you go from Xena all the way to the actual audition where you meet Quentin in the movie. You, we see you meet Quentin. Where I realized Zoe Bell would be terrific in the film was she starred in a documentary called uh, Double Dare. It's about her life and the life of uh, Jeannie Epper, who was kind of the first legend of stunt women. And Zoe being like you know, the new blood and Jeannie being the old guard, kind of telling their story simultaneously. And so they were making the movie about her. I didn't know this at the time. When she came to audition for Kill Bill, and I ended up giving the movie a whole third act. <laughs> Hi, I'm Quentin. I'm Zoe. Hi, nice to meet you, Zoe. How you doing? <laughs> But you watch the movie with audiences, and when she actually gets Kill Bill and you see it on screen, you, you can't help but start crying because she has that kind of personality in real life. I'm going to double entertainment. You capture it on film. It just comes out in the audience. You care about her. You love her. You're just charmed to pieces by her. Again, we talked about Xena, and the other thing, kind of, sorry, off a on a tangent for a second, yeah. but compared to the male performers, you guys have a lot less, because of the costume, and you have to be a lot more exposed skin-wise, you have a lot less places where to put padding. So that's, you know, a, another obstacle you have to overcome. In what ways do you think the variety of stunts on Xena over the three seasons prepare you for when the Kill Bill audition actually came around? Uh, that's... Uh... 
you're really good at this. I'll, I'll come back anytime. <laughs> if I talk too long and we need to do more, I will come back for more. <laughs> you know, it's a good point. The nature of TV, particularly Xena, particularly back then, and that's what I, I can speak to, was, you know, the turnover was really quick. So my, my learning curve had to be immediate. It was sort of like, I got to fuck up once and then that was sort of it, that you don't get to make that same mistake again. I could make different mistakes occasionally, but it was sort of a, we're just, we're moving on and there were so many fights and there were so many, so many people to kill, man, you know? It takes, you got to get through these things. But what I found was a real tool for me when I was doing Kill Bill, particularly the first couple of months, which was shot in Beijing. So we were working with the Chinese fight team, with Wu Ping and Didi and all of those guys that are like, the Chinese style is sort of not dissimilar. It's like the turnover is quick. Like, and if you make a mistake or you get injured, they're like, next, next person comes in. We're like, we're going, you know. And my experience was not dissimilar to that. So that didn't jar me at all falling into that rhythm. I, I re- respond really well to that. I love, I love that. That's the kind of challenge I enjoy. And it wasn't until I got to the States and was working on other, particularly, like you say, features, where I was like, oh, this is what waiting around looks like and I found that quite frustrating at first because it felt listen I can do nothing all day long I'm I'm innately lazy so that's not a problem for me but when I'm in work mode I want to see the shot get completed I want to see the episode get completed to the best sitting there doing nothing I found it really hard I had so much to offer but none of it could be used right then you know now I'm used to it I totally understand it but I definitely found that like how is it possible that I can sit around for seven hours and this is useful to you like we could be doing something you know but I've got pretty good at relaxing in the downtimes. <laughs> I was watching a documentary last night it kind of made me think about the fact that you know after three seasons of Xena the, the show ends and you f- suddenly find yourselves unemployed and we see you go to the Taurus Awards for the first time though it's exciting and new and fresh I'm sure there was a lot of anxiety in regards to what could have happened next yet to decide do I stay in New Zealand do I go is there one piece of advice you would have given yourself back then I think the one it doesn't relate specifically to that exact moment but I feel like it's coming from the same thing as what you're alluding to which is sort of that happened for me at the end like Kill Bill there was never a question. Would you like to double Uma Thurman and kill Bill and work with Quentin Tarantino? Yes, absolutely. I will sell my parents and my brother. Not a problem. You know, like, so that was never a question. I was injured at the end of Kill Bill whilst in LA and was on a visa that was specific to Kill Bill. So I found myself in this really, what felt like a massive decision, tricky spot to find myself in that was sort of like, because they offered me to get treatment in the States or go home and get treatment. My natural tendency is to come home because I know people. My dad was a doctor. Your support network's all there. I didn't know people in America, just the crew. And once the movie finishes, everyone goes back to their own lives and, you know. So at the end of summer camp, but I was so terrified to leave LA in case that window or that door shut behind me and that then it would never open again. Now I know better. And also not just know better, the, the world changed. Like the door between LA and or Hollywood and New Zealand is a much more revolving door now than it ever was before. It was like all kinds of locks and keys to get in there the first time around. I guess what I'm going with is the lesson is, and it's hard when you're young and it's hard when you're old actually, but Anytime you're making big life decisions, just just check in and see how much of what's swaying your decision is fear. Because there was a long time after that, I stayed in LA. In hindsight, I was miserable. I was in the most pain I'd ever been in. I couldn't work. I couldn't work out. I was in like post-surgery blues. 
didn't have any of my friends around, didn't have my family, didn't have, you know, all kinds of identity crisis and self-doubt and all of that kind of stuff because I was terrified that what I really wanted to do was was going to somehow cost me. And some, listen, sometimes it will, but if it's what makes you feel good on the inside, ultimately that's got to be the key to life, right? Because you could die at any given point. And if you're feeling really sh- shitty day to day, then what what are you doing, you know? Yeah, what's the point? Literally, what's the point? I mean, there were quite a few years in LA that I look back now and I'm like, I was scared to move and not just move from LA, but I was scared to go on holidays. It was like a wedding or two that I'm, there was a couple of weddings I missed because I was working, which is different, but I was scared to miss out on something. It was so hard to get to LA and it was so hard to earn a little place there that I felt trapped. And in hindsight, it was unnecessary. I mean, whatever, it was the it was the journey I took to get to the lessons that I learned to get me to where I am now. But that would be a piece of advice is just, just constantly check in with yourself. And if you're making decisions based out of fear, then you might want to, it's hard to do, but if you can remove the fear and then re-examine your options, I, I think that's a really powerful tool to use if you can. We kind of breezed over Kill Bill, but number one, I don't know anything about the injury and I'd be curious if you ask about that. But if we were to start talking about specific projects and Kill Bill in particular, I thought I may ask you about the fight against the Crazy 88 inside of uh, the House of Blue Leaves, because when we look at the documentary in general, I think there's the most footage from that specifically. And there was something really interesting you talked about, quote, through my relationship with Quentin, I learned how performance is heightened in a stunt performer, if willing to act also. When I'm in costume and in front of the camera, I am part of the character, a piece of the whole. Close quote. The idea of Quentin talking to you about intention and motivation and all these things, I was wondering how did your experience on Kill Bill evolve from the way you thought the job was going to be when you got the audition and the role and you're about to take off for China to your experience by the end of it? Well, originally when I got the job, my assumption was I am going to be the everything double because that's just what I did on Xena. We had riding doubles and body doubles and we had other stunt doubles. So there was, you know, I wasn't the only stunt double for Xena, but I was sort of the main one. But whatever that character had to do, I kind of had to figure it out and do it. And I assumed it would be the same for Kill Bill. And it wasn't until couple of weeks into training that I realized that the intention was to hire we had a guy called Tiger and a woman called Satya Tiger's Chinese Satya's I think half Chinese half Hawaiian and they're both just like wushu legends I had copied the boys that did wushu on Xena I had had them teach me how to do butterflies and how to you know so we fucked around on set and I I mimic well, you know, but they were experts in their field. And what it turns out is that I had been hired as the quote unquote by Quentin um, crash and smash double. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm pretty good at crashing and smashing, but it's easily not my favorite part of the job. Usually, you know, like I, that's part of what comes with being able to execute all this other cool shit. Usually that's just part of what comes with it. But then what ended up happening I think due in large to, A, I have some distinct similarities to Uma physically. B, I think because of my experience, Satya was a less experienced stunt double. She was an amazing wushu person, but she wasn't a stunt girl. And Tiger was a Chinese guy, you know. So he's shorter than me and he's a man. (laughs) So I was definitely a better double when it came to that. But so that combination of things with Quentin and I's, sort of the way we would collaborate about stuff because there was no American stunt coordinator in China. It was the Chinese fight team. I was part of their team 
And obviously, Didi and Wu Ping were my bosses, without a doubt. But when it came to the chain of kind of communication, it would go the Chinese fight team and me and Quentin. And Quentin would talk directly to me and I would talk directly to the fight team and Quentin would talk directly to the fight. So it was this kind of three-way. I understood his process quite quick. And it's part of my job and I think part of how I be decent at what I do is people in my personal life might disagree but I'm a good listener when it comes to work stuff and I watch so I'm observant when it comes to that stuff so I figured out what his process was and by nature having doubled Lucy for so long watching Uma and embodying her those things combined really appealed to Quentin and I just became an intrinsic part of the bride and a huge part of that process was not just me witnessing his but him requiring me to check mine and it looks something like, you know, what is your motivation in this shot? And my original response was like, to get up the top of the stairs. I mean, the stunt guys on Xena and I used to make that joke all the time. What's your motivation? Uh, lunch. <laughs> it's so funny. You know, we would make that joke all the time. So when it got posed to me as a serious question, it kind of floored me for a minute and it made me recognize that there was a whole side of my work and my profession that was untapped and, and kind of disrespected by me. Not intentionally. But that, I think, was the turning point, particularly, I think, for him in wanting to keep me in the bride fold. And it was a turning point for me in how I approach my work. I mean, I would never have considered myself as someone who would become an actor until basically that conversation, I imagine. Then let me ask you about that, your creative relationship with Quentin in general, once more. Quote, Quentin's always had sort of a deep respect and love for the stunt community and historically the role that they've played, close quote. So it's interesting, you know, once I stop and I look back and it's like, his movies are riddled with references. It's a love, it's coming from a place of love all the time. And I was wondering where do you think his appreciation for the stunt community comes from? And why do you think he brings the best out of you? Not just as a performer, but an action designer too. Okay, first half of that question, where do I think his love for it comes from? I mean, the real truth, it's hard sometimes when you're talking about Quentin because you say things that sound either too all-encompassing and or cliche and or large, but he is all of those things. His love for stunt people is not dissimilar to his just innate love of everything that makes making a movie possible, and especially the history and the, and, and the roots of all of that stuff, and old film and old TV is that, for a long time, stunt people were, I mean, completely unsung heroes. Also, there was a lot of actors just had to do that shit themselves because they didn't have a stunt person or they had a guy dressed as a woman or they had, so there was, stunt people weren't stunt people for recognition or glamour at all back in the day. Like, I'm sure if you went to the pub and offered to buy someone a beer and told them they were a stuntman, they'd probably want to buy it for you. But in the greater society, I guess we're kind of the underdog for a lot of the films that, are foundational in his love for film and unrecognized for a lot of that, particularly back in the day. So I think there's there's something in in that. And for him, I think he's one of those people that gets that story, character, dialogue in terms of character and relationship and action should be all inter, interweaved. They should all be in support of each other. They should be all little cogs making up one big mechanism rather than action just painted on on the top. I mean, same with special effects. Like, he's been fighting having anything but practical effects in his movies for ages. And then, you know, once upon a time comes along and for him to paint the world that he wants, which is authentic and has been in existence, he's had to access some of that stuff. 
he's not a hater of it. He's just a, I'll use it if it enhances my work. And I think that that, that all kind of speaks to his love of all those different departments back in the old school days where it, and everything was practical back then. Like we had a gag in Once Upon a Time that is like a guy, I don't know, if you haven't seen the movie, then it's your own fault. Go see it. <laughs> I was going to ask you about it. Are you going to talk about the bounty law, Balcony Fall? Yeah. And I didn't mean <laughs> if you haven't seen it. I meant more of uh, if listeners hadn't seen it. I didn't want to blow it. But it's not a story point, really. So it's not, I'm not giving anything away. But that wasn't in the script. And it was kind of like a, they'd all gone on a scout. I wasn't even on the scout because there wasn't meant to be any stunts. And Bill, first AD, came back after the scout and basically pulled me aside and was like, also, just so you know, now in the bounty law thing, he wants a guy at the top of the building, he gets shot, he falls, smashed through the balcony and hits the ground, you know, hits the bottom deck. You know exactly what he wants when someone describes that. You know, all the movies he's referencing, you know, all of the, you know, you just see it all. And I was like, right, cool, okay. Now, the conversation in this day and age is how do you do it with a wire? Because that's your responsibility. If, if you have technology at hand to keep your players safe, it's sort of your responsibility to use it. Or at least, as I saw it, my responsibility to explore it. And I also knew if I showed Quentin something with wires, he would likely scrap it and it just wouldn't happen. And that would bum me out because I loved the idea of that gag. So I went, we went and scouted and I stood at the top of the building and I, <laughs> this is my judge, I stood up there and I looked at it and I was like, okay, I would give that a go. So in that case, I just have to find me someone who's talented and gifted and not just like, I'll do it and kill themselves, who will give it a go. And then my team and I, Rob Alonzo, who was my my two IC, was amazing, amazing, so stoked to have him on board. It really humored me by, because I was like, look, on one level, it was like, we have to do it this way, because if we put it in wires, it's not going to exist. And I want this gang to exist. The other part was, and he raised really valid points, was like, we can make it look exactly the same with wires. And the guy's going to be safer, technically. And I was like, I understand. So the compromise we had is we rehearsed both. So we rehearsed the wire one. We got that nailed. I know I have that in the can. That's fine. And then we basically reverse engineered the gag. So Because I also know that Quentin doesn't want to see the guy disappear through the deck because that clearly that doesn't hurt. <laughs> he wants to see something that makes you go, oh, God, you know. So we basically had him falling into the catcher and we kind of just increased the density of the catcher. And I mean, it's all technical jargon, but so that he fell less and less into the ground. And we just kept going until we were like, if this starts to feel, and I was in comms with Corey the whole time, who's the performer. I was like, I need you to be honest with me. If this starts slapping hard, like feeling dangerous to you, you need to tell me. I'm not going to tell Quentin that you said that, but I need that information. I need that intel to move forward. Because I'm trusting you, not just to perform, but I'm trusting you to communicate with me because I need you to. We were all, by the end of it, we were like, oh, my God, we really want this to happen, you know. And we got the one in rehearsals, and I was like, we're doing it, kids. We're fucking doing it. And we got to set on the day. Action. Boom, bop, bop. Crash. Amazing. Check the gates. Moving on. And that was a one We were like, yeah. This man is worth $500. And this man's going to collect. He's Jake Cahill. And he lives by bounty law. You don't ever bring him in alive, now do you, Jake? Not when there's three of them and one of me. What are you looking at, bounty killer? Looking at an ugly owl who's about to get his jaw busted. <laughs> Amateurs try and take men in alive. Amateurs usually don't make it. Whether you're dead or alive, you're just a dollar sign to Jake Cahill on bounty law. Thursdays at 8.30, only on NBC. 
talking about danger and, and potential injuries. Before I move on to death proof, just out of morbid curiosity, I didn't know about the injury you had, but was that towards the end of Kill Bill? Yeah, it was towards the end of the shoot. I think it was like a couple of weeks before we finished shooting. And it was in the, I think it's Kill Bill 2. It all blurs for me because we shot it all at one, but there's a gag where she busts into Bud's trailer and he shoots her full of rock salt and she flies out of the trailer. In the movie, that's Monica Staggs, who was Daryl Hannah's stunt double. Because during rehearsals, some decisions were made that probably could have been made slightly differently and I ended up missing them out and, and um, fucking up my wrist, basically. It was. It's funny because it's one of those, you know, people always talk about broken bones. But we would rather, this sounds to I don't want to break any bones, but we would rather break bones than fuck with ligaments and tendons because ligaments and tendons are stubborn, grumpy, they hurt forever, they take ages to mend. Bones are like, once they've mended, they're like back to normal again. So all of my little wrist bones basically went in different directions and took ligaments with them. So I, I obliterated like the main ligament through there. So they had to relocate everything and then I had to have surgery where they stitched it back and then it was it had pins in it sticking out of my skin for like three months, full Frankenstein. Yeah. I feel like that's the closest I'll ever get to what it feels like to get kicked in the nuts is when the pins are sticking out of your bones and someone hits your cast and goes, oh, is it mended yet? Thinking it's just a break. And it's like the internal feeling of it's just wrong and your mouth gets wet and you kind of feel like you're going to throw up a little bit. But yeah, so that put me out for, so I didn't get to Kill Bill, which bit my nighty so hard back then. Now I'm like, that's fine. Shauna Duggins, who's a legend, took over. So I was like, I'm going to be taken over by a legend. I guess I can't complain. They even brought me back to set with my cast and everything on and put me in a little thing. So it's my feet smashing through the door when I'm going into the trailer fight. But yeah, that, that injury was a milestone in my career because it really, it shut me down. I couldn't work through it. I couldn't fake it. I couldn't just grin and bear it. It was just, it shut me down for, I think my next job was in a, for another year. It took me like eight months before I could do a handstand. I couldn't crawl for six months. It was like full identity crisis. The identity crisis, when I look back in hindsight, was so much more powerful and, and effective and taking me down than, than the actual injury and the actual pain. It was like, who am I if I can't walk on my hands? I've been walking on my hands since I was eight. What do I do for a living? It was bigger than I gave it credit for at the time. I heard you broke your back on Xenon. I think it must have been a big learning lesson in regards to trying to shake it off. You know, I think that even when we are on sets and people look and say, oh, I'm so upset that we did that mistake. Sometimes I'm like, it's good that you made a larger mistake beforehand on a smaller scale because sometimes you have a lot more to lose when you're in movies like these. Two things in response to that is I've quite often found myself saying to people, you have to be willing to make mistakes like the only reason I got any good at doing what I'm doing is because I fucked stuff up and had to figure out how to do it without making the same mistake like I alluded to before there's you know if you're making the same mistake repeatedly you're probably in the wrong line of work but the openness to make a mistake and have that be an opportunity to get better is really important in any line of work but particularly like you say in the line of work that could result in you hurting somebody else or getting injured yourself the two lessons I learned look similar from the outside but were quite different. Breaking my back on Xena, ironically, I, I never considered it breaking my back. I have fractured one of the vertebrae, like the little nubby bits that stick out because I hyperextended and it cracked. That's not to say it didn't hurt like hell, but, <laughs> you know, I was 19, so I healed really quickly is what I'm trying to say, and I was back within however many weeks. So I didn't learn the lesson that I learned on Kill Bill, which is like 
you have to figure out who you are outside of your work, outside of how everybody sees you, outside of the identity that you've created for yourself. You have to learn to love yourself anyway. That was the massive lesson. On Xena, when I fractured my vertebrae, the lesson learned was Pete Bell. Basically, we'd set up this gag and I was meant to flip off the veranda and land in the courtyard. It was two stories. They were never going to put me on the ground. I was always going to be held up. But then something happened, so I had to start way further back on the veranda than we had anticipated. So I was going to have to delay my rotation, I can't remember, 10 feet. I'd have to travel 10 feet before I could start the somersault, whatever. And Pete was like, I don't like it, so we're just going to do some cool Xena-style jump. And I was 19 and arrogant and hadn't faced my mortality yet. <laughs> it was like... I can make it work. And he was like, wow. And he strongly advised that I don't do it multiple times. I literally talked him into letting me do it. Strongly talked him into letting me do it. And uh, he was right. I look at it now and it's probably something I could probably make it work now just because I'm more experienced. But basically the delay in my rotation meant that as I hit the end of my rope, my hips stopped. I was facing up to the ceiling because my landing gear had come out. But before I could get upright, I hit the end of my rope. So my head and heels bent behind me I folded in half backwards and I am not a rhythmic gymnast I'm not that I'm not that kind of bendy you know so then I tried to come back to work three weeks later two weeks later I was like I'll be fine I'll be fine and I put you know I had a fight where one of the villagers smashed a chair over my back in a brawl fight I was like I'll be fine I'll just put two back pads on so I put two back pads on which was more padding than I'd ever worn on any other given day pretty much and uh one of the stunt guys smashed this chair over my back and it just dropped me it like I had no say in the matter I hit the ground all the air was out of my lungs my eyes were watering I wasn't even crying my eyes it was just I was felt like I might have been paralyzed again and the second unit director Paul came Paul Grinder came up to me and he looked at me and he was like here's the thing Zoe we need you but you're no good to us broken <gasps> like lesson, life lesson number one like well career lesson number one I should say no one's irreplaceable. And if you are important in any given role, in any given job, there is no point burning yourself out. There's no point being that tough guy to the point where you can't function. If you can't function, you're a wasted tool. Like I'm not going to reach for the broken hammer in my tool bag unless there's absolutely no other options. But if my best hammer is gone for a couple of days, I might have to work a little harder. That's going to suck. But if my good hammer comes back to me good, great. If my good ham is broken, that was a game changer for me, that one, which was not the same lesson in, in Kill Bill because it was sort of, a, I, I wasn't trying to be a tough guy. Something just went wrong, you know. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Zoe for taking the time to call in from Colorado and for sharing her amazing story. And to Eric Boss for doing the final mix on all of these episodes. Make sure you catch part two of the conversation where we dive deep into the making of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access. <laughs>